0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, thank you for your ancient words. For your ancient words that are more precious to us than gold. And we ask that in this moment, by the power of your spirit, speak to our hearts. Focus our attention upon you and accomplish your will. Accomplish your will in us. Magnify your glory in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this morning I want to start with a word of clarification about something that I said last week. I commented last week that here in chapter 6 in today's passage that we find the strongest, most uncomfortable warning passage in the New Testament. And then uh, later last Sunday after the sermon, Pastor David Mathis told me that he thinks the warning passage in Hebrews chapter 10 is actually stronger and more uncomfortable. So there you go, we... We have that to look forward to, okay. Just wanted to clarify that. But we are today focusing on chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. And these are sobering words. Today's sermon is going to be a little different than normal because uh, at some points we got to dig deep in some Bible study. It's going to feel at some points like this is just a Bible study, not a sermon. And that's because my goal is that we really understand this text. I I don't want this text to puzzle us. I want us to really track with what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And so I wanna just go ahead and dive right in in verse four. You just heard it read, but I wanna hear it again. This is the main warning that we're looking at, verses four to six. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have been once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Those five things are describing a category of person. And it's this person, this category of person of whom it is impossible, verse 6 to restore them again to repentance since they are crucified once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. These verses tell us that there is a category of person of whom it is impossible to restore to repentance. That's the main point of these verses and that gets our attention, right? In the the thing that really grabs us there in verse 4 is that word impossible. Impossible. There is a category of person of whom it is impossible to restore. And when we hear that, two immediate questions I think pop up in our minds. We think, is that right? And we think, Is that me? These are the two immediate, honest human questions of first, is this passage really saying what it sounds like it's saying? And then after that, if it is saying what it sounds like it's saying, could I be someone in the category that it's describing? These are the two questions. That we're looking at today. This is all we're looking at today, these two questions. And that first question is really the question, what, what exactly is the warning here? We're going to slow down and look at this in these verses. But before we get there, I want to start by just suggesting an approach for how we might come to difficult passages like this in the Bible. We're reading the Bible. We come to a, a hard text. What do we do? This passage in Hebrews 6 has historically and widely been considered a difficult passage, a hard text. And what makes this passage so difficult is how we read and understand these verses in light of the rest of the Bible's teaching. What do you do if you read a verse in the Bible that seems to be at odds with other verses in the Bible? The classic approach when we find ourselves in that situation, is to let the clear passages in the Bible shed light on the more obscure passages. In this case, for example, verses four to six say that there is a category of person who irreversibly falls away from God. And the issue is whether this person was ever a real Christian. Can a genuine Christian lose their salvation? That's the question, right? You heard that question before. You probably asked that question before. And that question we ask about this text because the the tension here, the tension is that we know from the rest of the New Testament in clear passages in the New Testament that a Christian's salvation in Jesus is secure. I'm thinking of, of passages like John chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I've got you and I'm never letting you go. That's the promise of John 10, 27 and 28. And then, of course, there's the the epic passage of Romans chapter 8, when the Apostle Paul tells us emphatically that there is absolutely nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are secure in God. God will hold us fast. God will keep us forever. And we are supposed to live in that hope. We're supposed to live in that comfort. All that is true. And so we bring that truth to this passage in Hebrews 6. We don't We don't sideline those clear passages. We don't try to forget about those clear passages, but we hold those passages as we read these words in Hebrews 6, and we think whatever this passage is saying, it cannot ultimately contradict this truth. And what happens is that as we hold the truths of the clear passages, while we carefully read the words of the obscure passages, it will eventually highlight for us the particular points of question. First, we're asking, what exactly is the warning? And in order to see this, we have to slow down and look closely at how this category of person is described in verses 4 to 6. And the first thing to notice is the grammar here. The writer of Hebrews is using the third person. He's not telling these readers that you have done this or that you are this category of person. But notice that he's speaking of those, those. It it is like a category. This is like a case study. He says, in the case of those, in the case of those. And then he lists five things that characterize The those, and I want you to see these with me here, okay? Follow along here in verses four. The those have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Three, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Four, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And five, they have fallen away. Those five things are a package Those five things all together form the description of this person of whom it is impossible to restore to repentance. And that should clarify something right away, just to make sure we see this. The question is not about whether a person can fall away. They certainly can fall away. In this particular case, they do fall away. And we talked about this, if you remember, the very first sermon of this series. We talked about how apostasy is a possibility. It can happen. And that's a reality here in these verses. Apostasy is the reality of those who are here described. The question, though, the question, as I I already mentioned, is if those who fall away were genuine Christians those who ultimately look at these verses here track with this those who ultimately fall away in verse six have experienced four amazing things stated in verses four and five and and because the bible clearly says that Christians are secure we're holding that right here as we read this text The question is, do the things stated in verses four and five mean that the those here were genuine Christians? That's the question. And the answer is no. Those described in verses four to six were not genuine Christians, despite the very special things that are said about them. And I wanna give you three reasons why this is the case, okay? This is gonna take a minute, just a heads up. I want you to try to hang with me here, okay? But like, th- this is the passage, okay? This is the text we have. And so I wanna spend some time here and give you three reasons, three reasons in verse, why, why, why verses four to six, three reasons why verses four to six is not referring to genuine Christians. Here's the first. The context of this passage has already established that it's possible to experience the miraculous work of God and still not believe. Just remember where we come from in Hebrews chapters three and four. It's important that we keep putting this entire letter into perspective. We looked at Hebrews three and four a few weeks ago. It's been a few weeks now for us, but, but as we, because we've been preaching through the book you know, every Sunday, but if you're this first audience Hebrews 3 and 4 would have been like five minutes ago, right? Remember, this letter was a word of exhortation. It was written to be read aloud to an original audience. And if if you were to read this letter from start to finish, it takes about 45 minutes, okay? And so literally... This first audience, when they're, when they're hearing Hebrews 6, they still have Hebrews 3 and 4 in their minds. Like Hebrews 3 and 4 is still echoing off the walls. I mean, it's right here in front of their minds. And Hebrews 3 and 4 gives us the cautionary tale of Israel's unbelief. If you remember, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3 and 4 reminds us that the Israelites who were rescued from Egypt, the Exodus generation, they did not enter the promised land because they failed to believe. And the whole point for why the writer of Hebrews has referred back to that part of Israel's history is to show that someone can have firsthand experiences of God's work and still end up having an evil, unbelieving heart that leads them to fall away from the living God. That's been the point. The writer of Hebrews tells this story He tells what happened, the apostasy of an entire generation of the people of Israel. He tells this story in Hebrews 3 and 4, and he says, hey, don't be like them. Don't be so close, and then walk away. To say it positively, the writer of Hebrews is telling these first readers and telling us, endure as a Christian. Endure in faith, be God's house, share in Christ, which is not to be like unbelieving Israel. That's Hebrews 3 and 4. And Hebrews 3 and 4 should be in our minds as we read Hebrews 6. Excuse me. And along with this context of Hebrews 3 and 4, the second reason that this is not referring to genuine Christians is because of the description of this person in in verses four to six is alluding to the unbelieving Exodus generation. I I think you'll be able to see this. It might not be immediately obvious as we're reading through these verses, but if we have Hebrews three and four fresh in our minds, and if we're familiar with the Old Testament in the same way that these first readers were familiar with the Old Testament, we notice that each of the things that are mentioned in verses four to six were true of Israel back in that Exodus generation. Start with the first thing mentioned here. Those who have once been enlightened. Now the, the image is light, okay? Light. Simply put, to be enlightened is to have the lights turned on. Just imagine what it's like to walk into a room that's pitch dark. You've done this before. You walk into a room, it's pitch dark. What's the first thing you do when you walk in that room? You're trying to find the switch, right? Because you can't see. But when you find the switch and you turn the lights on, then you can see. And when you can see because the lights are on, now you're aware of what's in the room. Now that you can see because of the light, you're informed about where to go. That's, that's the idea of what's happening here. And this is like when the people of Israel, this is what they experienced after the Exodus with the pillar of fire that led the people through their travels. The pillar of fire was how God enlightened the people on the way that they should go. That's how Nehemiah nine twenty one and Psalm 105, 30, 39, that's how they talk about this pillar of fire. God rescued his people from Israel and he turned the lights on. He enlightened them on their way. That's the first thing to notice. Next in verse four, this category of person, they were enlightened, but also they tasted the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift here is an allusion to God's provision of manna. For all of the people who came through the Exodus, God provided manna for them to eat as a gift from heaven. Remember this? God literally, he freely rained down bread from heaven as a gift. It just dropped out of the sky. And everybody, all of the people of Israel tasted that gift. They ate it. All of them benefited from that gift. And then third... They, they shared, this, this person described here, shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift. Sharing in the Holy Spirit is the hardest to understand of these five things. This is the part, I think, that historically has caused the most consternation when we come to Hebrews 6. What, what does it mean, shared, shared in the Holy Spirit? I remember years ago, uh, right after I started seminary, I was uh, still in North Carolina and um, was uh, hanging out with a pastor um, of a church uh, in North Carolina discussing this passage. And, and the church that this pastor brother was a part of was uh, from the Pentecostal Free Will Baptist denomination. And you've probably never heard of that denomination before. I'm guessing not. We don't really have, have churches like that around here, but, but where I grew up, there were lots of PFWBs, okay. And in this conversation with this, with this brother pastor, he told me that the reason he could not be a Calvinist, the reason that he's an Armenian, and just that's a, that's a, that's a different sermon, okay. We'll come back to that at another time. But he told me the reason that he landed where he did theologically was because of this one clause in this one verse, Hebrews 6, 4. He kept saying to me, they shared in the Holy Spirit. They shared in the Holy Spirit. And they did. The text says they did share in the Holy Spirit. But we should not assume that this sharing in the Holy Spirit is the same thing as being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Or we shouldn't assume that it's the same thing as being sealed with the Holy Spirit. I think we should read this sharing in light of the first two things that we've read here in verse four. In the same way that all the Israelites benefited from the pillar of fire that enlightened their journey. And in the same way that they all ate the gift bread from heaven that God gave, in that same way, they all shared in the benefits of the Holy Spirit. It was God by his spirit who enacted these blessings that the entire Exodus generation of Israel experienced. Every person in that generation followed the pillar of fire. They all ate the same bread that fell from heaven. And in that way, they all shared in the benefits of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, part of that sharing includes verse five, tasting the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now I'm persuaded that this sentence here is alluding to the actual promises of God that the people of Israel heard. Twice in the book of Joshua, Joshua refers to the good promises of Yahweh. Everyone in that generation heard with their ears about the promised destiny of of Israel, They heard God's word that they were going to a promised land. And they all saw with their eyes God's word accompanied by great signs and wonders. They heard the word. They saw signs and wonders. The power of God was on display for them. And then fifthly and finally, the those here. In verses four to six, this category of person who has experienced all of these wonderful things, they fall away. Ultimately, like we've already seen in Hebrews three and four, even despite all that they've experienced, they do not believe this person ends up doing, this, this category of person in Hebrews 6, 4-6, to 6, they end up doing just what the writer has warned us about in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. They have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads them to fall away from the living God. So in summary... This package of five things mentioned in verses 4 to 6 is alluding to the unbelieving Exodus generation, which means the writer of Hebrews is continuing the cautionary tale of Hebrews 3 and 4. Israel's amazing experience and unbelief is a category of person. It's a possibility. Someone could be so close They could be around and even benefit from the sincere work of God. And they could still walk away from it. The experiences of verses 4 and 5 do not mean that the those here are genuine Christians. And verse 6 proves that they are not genuine Christians. And the most important reason we know this is the third thing here. The key evidence of genuine Christians is not mentioned in this list. And that key evidence is faith. You notice that? Nothing is said in these verses about faith. There's nothing here about trusting in Jesus. It's important that in Hebrews 3, verses six and 14. When the writer of Hebrews affirms these readers that they are real Christians, what does he say? Look back at Hebrews three, verse six for a second. The writer is telling these readers how they are not like unbelieving Israel. He says, Hebrews three, six, and we are his house, God's house. We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. The way that these Christians are different from unbelieving Israel is not a fundamental difference of experience. Maybe, maybe these Christians have even prophesied in Jesus' name. Maybe they've even cast out demons in Jesus' name. Maybe they've even done mighty works in Jesus' name. Maybe. What makes them different is that they believe, is that they hold fast. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Church, the mark of a genuine Christian is faith. And it's not just initial, partial, I'm interested, I'm curious, I'll check it out kind of faith. It's enduring faith, it's perseverance. And perseverance is nowhere on this list in verses four to six. The exhortation to these readers over and over again in this letter is to hold fast. <laughs> Enduring faith, hold on, cling to Jesus. And that is precisely how they are different from this category of person in Hebrews six, verses four to six. And it's this category of person. It's this person who has been so close, who has seen so much, is this person who then turns away from Jesus in unbelief. And then it's impossible to restore them to repentance. That kind of apostasy, that kind of unbelief, is as if, verse 6, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What in the world does that mean? Well, obviously it's not literal, right? They're, they're, they're not physically re-crucifying Jesus. But the point is that the unbelief of their hearts is reenacting the unbelief of those who crucified Jesus, To walk away from Jesus, even after all they've experienced, is to put themselves in the position of those who crucified Jesus. And when we think about that, we can't help but think about Judas. When it comes to falling away, we have the sad example of the Exodus generation in the Old Testament. That's what the writer of Hebrews has been saying in Hebrews three and four. But we also have some sad examples of apostasy in the New Testament. And foremost of those examples is Judas. Doesn't it pain you just to say the name? Judas. We always think about Judas this time of year, don't we? On Holy Week. Because this week as we rehearse the events that led to the cross, we know that the turning point, the event, the thing that kicked into motion, the crucifixion of Jesus, was Judas' betrayal. That was such a significant event that we do a special service every year to mourn the moment. That's what the Monday Thursday service is. We're going to gather here Thursday night at 730, and we're gathering here on Monday Thursday to to try to remember, to to, to feel in a fresh way the shock, the shock of what Judas did and Peter and all the disciples who scattered. Have have, have we really thought about Judas? Have, Have we really thought about Judas, think about this, look. He was not just enlightened. He saw the light of the world, like right here. He didn't just taste heavenly bread, but he had countless dinners, meals, with the bread of life. He didn't just share in the benefits of the Holy Spirit, but for three years, three years, he was in a small group with the second person of the Holy Trinity. He didn't merely taste the goodness of the word and the powers to come. But Judas was a first-hand witness to the Word made flesh, perform miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Judas saw it. He saw Jesus command the ocean. He saw Jesus call a man back from the dead. Imagine what he saw, all that Judas saw. And for a little stack of cash, he walked away from all of it. He turned his back on all of it. Judas happened. It happened. Judas happened. And Judas still happens today. And you know it does. Because I would guess that every single one of us in this room knows of someone who at one point seemed to have genuine faith in Jesus. But where are they now? sobering right I've been a Christian long enough that I can't even keep up with the list of people who once expressed seem to have genuine faith in Jesus but now they don't and it's always a hard circumstance it's always somebody else's fault But the fact of the matter is, they once were close to Jesus, but now they have rejected Jesus. And that is why they are not restored to repentance. The impossibility of their repentance does not mean that they come to Jesus and Jesus rejects them. It means that they do not come to Jesus at all. Jesus, we know this from the clear passages in the Bible, Jesus does not reject anyone who comes to him in faith. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Even if that heaviness is your sin or your failure or your hypocrisy, even if you've been a Pharisee and you realize you've been faking it the whole time, Jesus says, come to me. And if you come to him, you will find repentance. You will find grace. You will find forgiveness. But this person here in verses 4 to 6, they have rejected Jesus. They do not come to him. They want nothing to do with him. And that is why it's impossible to restore them. The land is bad. The soil is hard. That's verses 7 and 8. Hard soil. There's two ways to go here. Either good soil or hard soil. Bad soil. This reminds us of the parable of the sower that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 8. And this is the summarizing illustration of the writer's point here. This is what he's been saying. Either it's good soil and faith which leads to blessing or it's bad soil and unbelief which leads to destruction. So then what exactly is the warning in these verses? The warning is don't be the bad soil. <laughs> don't be like the unbelieving Israelites. Don't be like the those described in verses 4 to 6 who are so close and yet walk away. That's the first question. What is the warning? The second question is, but what if I am? What if I will be? You get get that question, right? How how do I know that I will not fall away? What what an important topic, right? My goodness, that is such a vital topic, a vital question for us. It's the focus of the next verses in this passage, and that's what we're gonna look at next week. So, so those verses are gonna be our Easter sermon next week, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but I want you just to notice right away what the writer of Hebrews says in verse nine, and we're gonna close here, verse nine. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. I'm so glad this is in the Bible. I'm so glad for verse nine. In the Greek now, the word order is different. The first word is the word translated, we feel sure. It means we're certain, we're convinced, That's the first thing the writer says here. After these weighty words, after describing this category of person and where it leads, the writer says immediately, but we're certain in your case, beloved, we're certain in your case of better things. He says, hey, I am confident readers, I'm confident that your story will not be like theirs. And we're gonna see the details next week, but for now, I just want to bring you back to the tone. There's enough here in verse 9 for us to catch the tone. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is speaking like a good coach. Remember? Team, bring it in. Now, he's, he's honest. He's being honest, right? The warning here is real. It's not hypothetical. The, the warning is legit. But he he believes in his team he believes in his team he's hopeful about these readers and he's hopeful for us and and we as christians are called to live in such hope we soberly heed warnings we hear warnings but that does not mean that we live wringing our hands in doubt and suspicion about ourselves or others this is important There's a way to think about perseverance as if it means the genuineness of our salvation is always on trial. And we're never going to really know if it's genuine until the very end. We can think that way. But I just want to be clear, that's not the way it should be. That's not how we should live. That kind of suspicion is not of Christ. And I believe it creates a church culture that is far less than the mutual encouragement that this book calls us to. The church is not supposed to be a community that is always assuming one of us is Judas. I mean, how does that work? Could you imagine that? Doing life together as a church and we're always kind of like, yeah. There's Judas's around here. It's important to understand that our perseverance is not what finally makes us saved, but it's what we do because we are saved. And it's the manifestation of our salvation. Perseverance is the fruit of our new birth, which happened in the past. And that new birth that happened in the past was real. Look, we, we don't, we're not supposed to look back when we first received the gospel and think, we'll see. We don't do that. We don't do that about ourselves. We don't do that for one another. We don't look back with suspicion about when we first received the gospel. Instead, we look back and we say, that is when the old became new. That's when my story changed. That's when the dead was made alive. That's when I became in Christ, called from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We look back and we say, there's where I died and became a Christian. There's when I became a Christian. And the most relevant evidence that it was real, the most relevant evidence that the new birth was real That we indeed are Christians. It's that we believe right now. We're here. Hey, we're in the room. Right now, in this moment, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is my treasure. I love him. I love him. With everything I am, I love Him. And we love Him, right? We love Him. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we honor you. We worship you. We ask that you magnify your glory in our lives, in our faith, in our hearts. We believe. Right now, we believe. We cling to him right now, today, today, we have not heart in our hearts. Today, right now, we live in his rest. We surrender to his word and we delight in his grace. We delight in his grace. And that's what brings us to this table. We come to this table every week in the hope that our salvation in Jesus is secure. That's what we're saying. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we give Jesus thanks for his death and resurrection. And we are saying to him, and we are saying to one another, I believe. I I still believe. He's kept me. He's holding on to me. And together we're saying, we're clinging to him. We're holding on to him. We love him. We trust him. And we participate with him at this meal. We fellowship with him. And so if you would say that, if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus and this morning you believe in him, we invite you to receive the bread, eat the bread, and drink the cup. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.